From Smashing the Plateau, I'm David Schreiner Khan with Going Solo. In this show, we discuss building your own successful business after a late career job loss. There's always a grass, there's always greener uh, effect here. People who are in 9 to 5 W2 type jobs look over at those of us in solo practice and say, oh my God, it's so great. You can get up whenever you want. You can stop working whenever you want, et cetera, et cetera. But if you're not careful about that, you can end up working 80, 90, 100 hour weeks. Today on episode 61 of Going Solo, I'm speaking with Simon Brady. Simon left a high-pressure job on Wall Street to create his own solo practice as a financial advisor with a fairly unique model. Simon discusses how he moved into a very crowded industry and created a business that served his needs while being financially successful and providing way less stress than his previous job. Stay with us to hear all the details. If you'd like to share your story on going solo, please get in touch with me at smashingtheplateau.com. Now let's welcome Simon Brady. Simon is a seasoned financial advisor specializing in working with millennials and individuals that are between the ages of 20 and 40, in particular those that are coming out of a divorce or suddenly single, and foreign nationals that are living and working in the U.S., Simon, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Simon, how did you end up with this particular niche audience as a financial advisor? Yeah, it is It is a little specific, but uh, I think what drove me to these uh, particular groups is one, that they are thoroughly underserved. The traditional client of a financial advisor is a pre-retiree or retiree that has saved up a lot of money and hands over the money to the advisor to manage. I don't think a lot of financial advisors take a lot of notice of people under aged under 40, unless they are particularly uh, wealthy. But the niches all relate back to to me in my past, in a way, I was a child of a, a messy and financially damaging divorce back in the UK. And I know how awful that can be, both from an emotional standpoint, but also from a financial standpoint. And as you may have picked up on on the accent, I uh, came to the US when I was 26 years old. I was transferred here by my employer at the time. And I did not realize some of the quite significant financial planning issues that uh, foreign nationals who are here have to address, whether they're on a visa or a green card. Uh, There are particular issues that they have that Americans do not. Yeah, it is, you know, in my experience, um, the niche that you focus on is unusual for financial advisors. And I I do know plenty of financial advisors that um, would try to avoid talking to your audience. It's yes, and 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 that's really a result of the compensation structure of most financial advisors, which is based on either asset, can be both assets managed, or and or commissions charged on products that they are encouraging their clients to buy. Uh, my model is very different. I'm a fee-only advisor. I take no commissions whatsoever. Uh, I can manage assets for clients, but I don't do it. I don't in- impose it upon them, and I don't have a minimum. My compensation method is essentially project-based. So I'm a fee-only advisor. We sit down, we talk about what 
we want to accomplish for this relationship? Do they want to look through their college funding? Is it retirement planning based? Is it estate planning based or whatever it is? I'll look at it and say, a bit like an old time lawyer, this looks like this number of hours and here's my hourly rate and we'll go through the whole project. At no point am I paid from any third party to impose or to try and sell uh, products to them. I'm not allowed to. So there's a complete fiduciary relationship without the conflicts of interest that most financial advisors have. And Simon, why did you decide on this particular business model? I got into this on my own in 2016. And it was a time when I could sense the tide was turning. The traditional financial planning model of, you know, being paid almost round the back by the mutual fund providers to push as much of this product onto their clients as possible, uh, of selling life insurance to clients just didn't seem to cut it, particularly for this demographic that I'm looking at. They want to talk about estate planning. They want to talk about socially responsible investments. They want to talk about things that that kind of advisor cannot monetize, if you like. Mm -hmm. So I want to be able to say to them, look, I'm going to talk about any, every aspect of your personal finance, uh, including debt management. You know, those advisors can't monetize advising people on debt management, but I can because it's time and project based. So I figured it would be a lot easier to cut off all the access to the commission and simply work on purely on a fee-only basis. It also means that I don't have, you know, my clients don't have to have uh, a particular amount of money uh, or a particular net worth to work with me. If they're willing to pay my fee, I will work with, uh, with anyone who fits my, fits my demographic. Yeah. And, and, you know, as you said, debt management, debt management is a big issue, especially here in the U.S., Right. Dealing with, you know, if I'm dealing with people aged between 20 and 40, 80% of them are going to have some sort of some sort of debt, be it a mortgage or student loans or, or often both. And I'll work with them on the most on the optimum way to pay that down. I can bring people in from the outside, uh, which, again, a traditional financial advisor and their business model just can't handle that. And with the foreign nationals, I'll have a special consultation at which I will tell them, here's all the things you need to know that's going to happen to you in the next, if they're right, you know, if they've just recently arrived, this, 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 and this is going to happen to you in the coming weeks and you need to be ready for it. So again, I can charge for that in terms of charging a fixed fee for a consultation. Uh, it doesn't lend itself to the commission-based model. Got it. So now you've been at this for what, about four years? So I've been at it on my own for about four years. Yes, I set up my own firm in early 2016, as I said. Uh, the year prior to that, I worked at the United Nations as a financial advisor there. The UN actually has a credit union of its own. And that was uh, interesting and also useful to me in terms of dealing with foreign nationals, of course. But the majority of my employment history is kind of Wall Street based. Uh, I spent 20 years working in the financial districts of London and New York. And it was, you know, it was not that dissimilar from the Wolf of Wall Street movie type thing. Uh, our clients were the big investment houses, Goldman Sachs, UBS, um, Merrill Lynch, etc. And I was dealing in um, 
equity derivatives, which sounds very grand, but essentially it was moving money from one place to another, uh, screaming, shouting, <laughs> becoming very raucous on the phones in a trading environment, nothing to do with financial planning for individuals. So I made that transition in uh, 2010 because obviously 2008 was very damaging to that environment. I mean, there was nothing worse than a and derivatives as a curse word uh, back then. And I realized, you know, once we started coming out of that in 2009, 2010, I needed to be in, a, in an environment that was A, a lot less stressful than that because I was getting older and B, had a little more of a future. So that's when I went out and got the designation, the CFP, Certified Financial Planner designation, which took three years of class. And Having that designation permitted me then to go into personal financial planning and ultimately set up my own firm. Mm. So were you still working on Wall Street during those three years when you were training? There was a bit of overlap, yes. I was doing the I was doing night classes for the CFP, but they you know they gave us a lot of homework. It was very, very intensive. And once I completed the course, which was at NYU, they recommended four hundred hours of study before you took the exam. So at that point, I realized I couldn't juggle the two anymore. So I, I quit the Wall Street job, uh, I think in 2009, 2010, put in the 400 hours and then took the exam in, uh, I think it was 2012. Mm-hmm. And uh, once you, uh, fortunately, I passed it. And once you have that, that then gives you the ability to set up a registered investment advisor firm and it permits you to go on your own and and charge for financial advice as opposed to charge for, uh, sorry, be able to take commissions, which is what the Series 7 exam does for you. Um, if you have the Series 7, you're not technically allowed to give financial advice, but you can take commissions for selling stuff. So I got the uh, CFP, which uh, permitted me to do the former. And now that it's a number of years past that transition, how do you feel about the decision that you made? Very good. First of all, in terms of what I don't have to do anymore, which is, you know, those guys make a very early start in the mornings. It's extremely stressful during the day. Uh, it can be very destructive to family life and everything else. I don't miss the activity. It's very exciting when you're in your 20s or 30s even, but it is extremely stressful and extremely difficult to continue to do when you're when you're older i miss the income that it generated because it was a very um it was very lucrative career but i am much much happier now dealing with instead of moving you know money from ubs to goldman sachs i'm far more uh, i get far more sense of accomplishment at sitting down with an individual or a couple or a family uh, and making a really significant difference in their lives, as opposed to just shifting millions and millions of dollars of, of uh, pretty opaque derivative assets from one company to another, which didn't really it didn't really give me any kind of sense of accomplishment. The impact that you're making is uh, is personal and and real, and you can feel it with the people that you're interacting with and serving. Very much so. People don't wake up in the morning and say, I want to go and see a financial planner today. There's usually some kind of catalyst that brings them to me. And some of them, some of those catalysts are very difficult. It can be job loss. 
It can be, as I mentioned earlier, coming out of a divorce, but it could also be, you know, inheritance of a, of a significant amount of money, some life event that has been triggered, uh, and some are bigger than others. So the biggest, um, the biggest life event that triggers the most moving parts is probably the birth of a child, because you then have to. You don't have an option. You have to conduct some estate planning. Uh, you have to look at at least a uh, life insurance. Very often, there can be a real estate event from that. You know, you're living in a place for two people. Suddenly, there's three. Uh, you may well have to have to move. Uh, obviously, college planning suddenly appears on the horizon, and budgeting becomes. You know, your your old budget is out of the window now. Uh, as I'm sure if you've, uh, all of us who've gone through the experience of having a child know that. So something like that, when somebody comes to me, uh, it can be very, very overwhelming if it's, not your, if it's not something that you are professionally involved in. And I get a lot of enjoyment out of sitting with somebody and working them through all this. And then, you know, a little while later, putting everything on autopilot and there they're suddenly calmer and they can suddenly deal with all the things that they should be dealing with, which is bringing up the kids rather than sitting stressing about the financial side of it. Yep. Makes total sense. So Simon, as stressful as your your work was as an employee, what kinds of things may have surprised you when you went into your own business that um, perhaps you didn't expect? Uh, that's an easy question, actually. Uh, time management. You know, when I, I was on Wall Street, you know, the markets opened at the same time every day. They closed at the same time every day. You know, almost every hour of my day was sort of mapped out for me. I didn't have to be creative about um, arranging this or arranging that. When I first went into business on my own, I mean, I was horrible at it. I'd, I'd arrange eight meetings a day or something like that. And of course, I, you know, I'd be late for the for the last six of them, because I just couldn't organize my calendar or my to-do list correctly. And that took, oh my gosh, David, that took like two, two years plus. And I wouldn't even say I'm perfect at it yet now. That was definitely the, the biggest, I mean, other than not getting a regular paycheck and paying my own health insurance, that was the business side of things that, that shocked me the most. I thought it would be relatively easy, just get a Google calendar and stick a few things in it. Oh my God, it's not like that. <laughs> it, it is amazing what um, some of the surprises that we get in new situations. It is. And the ability to, you know, what seems to be, there's always a grass is always greener uh, effect here. People who are in, you know, nine to five W2 type jobs, look over at those of us in solo practice and say, oh my God, it's so great. You can get up whenever you want. You can stop working whenever you want, et cetera, et cetera. But if you don't, if you're not careful about that, you can end up working 80, 90, 100 hour weeks not because you're really on a roll, but because you feel you have to, to tread water. So it's hard. Yeah. It's hard. What are some of the things that you learned about how to, you know, in addition to managing your time, because time is a big issue, especially when you're solo, it really is very much tied to how profitable you are. What are some of the other things that you um, had to learn in order to be more profitable? I think, I think the ability to know what I don't know and the ability to determine what needs to be outsourced 
and what I can struggle away at or what technologies available to help me manage this sort of stuff. For, I mean, a great example is bookkeeping, right? I mean, as a financial advisor, I've got quite strict bookkeeping regulations I need to be by. And I just, I mean, I tried it for a couple of months and then threw my hands up and I'm going to pay a bookkeeper. It just doesn't make any sense for me, just on, given the fact that, as you said earlier, time is literally money. I mean, time is a currency for me. I'm paid by the hour. And that hour spent struggling, you know, trying to reconcile some payment that was underpaid or overpaid for two hours in, in the bookkeeping environment does is extremely costly for me. So I needed to recognize what I don't, what I can't do on my own, outsource it or find a technology that can uh, reduce the amount of time I spend on it to, to a minimal amount. Mm. So who's on your team now? Me. Uh, it's just me right now. It's okay as things stand. I have a, a good client base. The nature of the business, the per hour nature of the business means that um, uh, engagements come to an end after the agenda is eventually completed. Now, they can re-engage me at any point in the future. But essentially what happens is I'm rolling over uh, if I've got four or five engagements ongoing at one time, one of them will eventually come to an end and I need to find another one. So there's a constant prospecting practice going on here. I can't just let five engagements just all drop off and suddenly have nothing. So I need to be constantly prospecting as well. But uh, it's really it's, it's really quite, trying to think of the word, it's really quite... Uh, well, it's a transactional model. It's transactional, it's volume-based, but it does mean that as opposed to having clients forever, like there's another model out there, which is the subscription model where somebody pays you the same every month. The problem with that model is that after you reach a certain level, certain number of clients, you, you're, you're capped out. Because if you've got 30, 40, 50 clients who are all theoretically capable of engaging me or triggering me at one time, you know, I can't handle that, obviously. So uh, this is more, as you say, it's more transactional. It's project-based mm -hmm. is, is the way to do it. Projects come to an end, so you need to replace them. Right. So as, lo as long as there's a, a steady flow in the pipeline, it can be a very healthy business. Yes. Yes. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of financial advisors, financial planners who look down their noses at the uh, at the hourly model, thinking that it's, you know, helping one or two people for two or three hours and, and you know, you can't make a living off it. Uh, if you structure it correctly, it can be it can be very profitable. Yes. Yeah. But, but, you know, it goes back to really understanding who you are, what you need, what you want, what kind of business is going to work best for you understanding the business environment and how the different models can work and um, trying trying to find a, a good good alignment of everything. Yep, it's working right now. There are scenarios where uh, I would say probably in uh, maybe May or June when people were still in shock about uh, lockdown and everything else, the pipeline did dry up because you just couldn't get anyone's attention. But since then, people have obviously, a lot of people have gone through a financial reset. Business has been pretty good. It's very, very referral-based, obviously. I don't do a lot of marketing. 
I rely on clients that I've helped to tell other people about it. And that's where the niche really, really comes in because the millennials and the individuals aged between 20 and 40 and the foreign nationals and the divorced people, they're not used to having financial advisors take any notice of them, really. Or if they do, it's usually the more predatory kind of advisor. So they do tend to refer pretty well, which right. is good. Yeah, and you, so you have, you have major differentiation. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd like to think so. And, and any uh, marketing that I do do or content that I do create or the sense of my website is very much pushing, you know, these three aspects, uh, 40 and under, suddenly single, foreign national. If you fall into any of those categories, and obviously there are people who fall into more than one, I would love to think that I am the trusted advisor that is experienced enough to work with you. If you're, 50, if you're a 55-year-old uh, American coming up and want, need, need some help on Medicare, Social Security, and what to do with retirement and everything else, there's, there's 100,000 financial advisors in New York that can help you with that. I'd rather work with these other people. Yeah, it, it's good to know who you want to serve and also who you don't want to serve. Yep. Yep. I mean, I know, you know, Medicare, Social Security and all the, the, the is a very, very nuanced area. Uh, there's a lot of strategy that's required. I know it all from a exam point of view, but am I the right person to have a very deep conversation with about Medicare? Probably not. There are plenty of other advisors who really look into that stuff in a lot more detail. So I will, if people have misunderstood my audience and come to me, I will never send them out on their own. I'll always find an advisor who is, is specialized in their area because I know a lot of advisors in New York, but I will not. Yeah, there's no sense in me taking these, a case that doesn't fit my criteria. Makes perfect sense. Well, Simon, this has been a really interesting discussion about your own journey, your business, who you serve, how you do it, how you've gone through the transition. If somebody wants to go deeper with anything we've discussed today or they want to access any resources you have or get in touch with you, what's the best place for them to go? The easiest thing is simply to go to my website, which is uh, angliaadvisors.com, A-N-G-L-I-A advisors.com. There's a contact page there with all the best ways to contact me. There's a description of all of the different models. So everything, everything they need is up there. Uh, that would definitely be the easiest. Now, Simon, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to join us today on Going Solo. Share your story, share your insights. My guest today has been the owner of Anglia Advisors, Simon Brady. Thank you again, Simon, for joining us. Thanks for the opportunity, David. When you visit the Going Solo website, you'll find a summary of each episode along with the links we mentioned on the show. Today, we learned how to create less stress with sufficient financial reward as a solo practitioner and much more. If you'd like to share your story on going solo, please get in touch with me at smashingtheplateau.com. Remember to subscribe on whatever platform you listen on and leave a review if you can. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our show. I'll see you on our next episode.